0: Here's the host of the Talent Talk radio show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer.
1: Welcome to Talent Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of the show. And I'm really excited to have two fantastic guests today with a little bit of a, maybe a slightly different twist on where we normally kind of put our attention around talent, but we're looking at innovation, we're looking at technology and AI, and just sort of a, really important part of the conversation, but maybe one that we don't always touch on. So, um, you know, we we are so blessed to have so many inspiring leaders that come in every week, talk about what their journey looks like. What are they thinking about? What's important to them? What have they learned and what are they sharing and what are they thinking about? And of course, what books are they reading? We'll get to all of those questions here uh, for both my guests today, but if you uh, are interested in maybe some of the the past guests? Uh, would love to have you go to, you know, iTunes or iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify. Even go to TalentTalkRadio.com and just type in you know Talent Talk Chris Dyer, and you can make it make sure to subscribe and never miss a an episode. But also go back and look at some of those past guests that we've had some some wonderful wonderful people on that have given us such great advice. And a lot of the stories that they have told I actually put into my first book, The Power of Company Culture. You can check that out wherever you buy your books. Um, hope you can, t- can do that. And then there's a second book coming out here in May of 2021 called Remote Work. And we we'll talk talking about more stories and more uh, really strategies that uh, companies are figuring out and, and using now uh, to, to help with their remote or hybrid uh, work as it may turn out to be. Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, So if you want to tune in live, that's great. And we also live tweet as we're talking so you can ask questions, you can comment, you can kind of read through all the best one-liners, maybe get links to the guest profiles or links to books and things that they've mentioned. We put it all right there. If you're listening after the fact, that's okay. It's still there on Twitter for you and you can get us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, But uh, we love to have that, that kind of live interaction if you're on Twitter and want to let us know you're there. All right, my guest today on the show, my first guest will be Quincy uh, Valencia, the Vice President of Product Innovation at AMS, uh, where uh, Quincy and her team run Hourly, a uh, conversational hiring experience platform. So we'll find out more of that, about that in a moment. But after the commercial break, we'll bring in my second guest, Ming uh, Hui Huang. She does a a distinguished professor of e-commerce at the National Taiwan University of Information Management. Uh, She'll join me in the second half of the show. Uh, Even though she works for that university, she's actually in the United States. So we'll be able to connect with her and have that conversation. But let's get back to my first guest. Excited to bring in Quincy Valencia. Quincy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. It's exciting.
1: Yeah. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you? You know, what was, what's your sort of journey to this point been like, you know, professionally, what's important for us to know, I guess, and kind of understanding who you are and what you're focusing on.
2: Sure. I'm happy to. Thanks for that. So I've been in the talent acquisition space um, in different sort of capacities since the nineties. So I'm dating myself just a little bit, started as an operations leader, um, but ended up moving quickly into talent acquisition. So both running recruiting organizations, and then quickly moved into um, designing and developing recruitment process and technology kind of stacks and setups for larger organizations. And over the course of the years, um, I had come across who actually is now my boss, who's the managing director um, of the product division for AMS, um, and we had shared a similar um, experience which is frustration so we in talent acquisition in general have added solution after solution and technology product over technology product for 20 years to try and make things easier for hiring and all we've really done is make it a little bit easier on the back end for for recruiters we've definitely made it harder for candidates and no one has actually really focused on that hourly market that low complexity low barrier to entry uh, workforce, which if 2020 taught us nothing else, it's those are the people who are driving our economy. We all see that more than anything, it's the barista and the waiter and the waitress and the person packing the package at Amazon, which is the only way I've stopped for a year at least. Um, and so we set out to really create a product that was specifically purpose-built um, to make hiring easy for everyone involved in the process, be it an application, an applicant or candidate, to a recruiter if there is one, to certainly a hiring manager and then showing all the results of that to the leadership of organizations so they can really direct their efforts where they're getting the best return.
1: So you mentioned the the hourly worker, and I think that's certainly been a focus for my organization as well. How do we help uh, those frontline workers? How do we help people who are you know, still going into their place of work to make it easier for them to be hired, to manage the process? Uh, sometimes these people are Maybe you could put them in category of low skilled. You could put them in the category of being young. You could put them in category of being inexperienced. And so a lot of the things that we're throwing at them are maybe not uh, as easy for them as maybe someone who has been working in, you know, as a, a vice president of whatever for many, many years, right? So Sort of a different in their difference in their experience in that. So how have these hourly workers maybe been impacted by the pandemic? And, and what are you seeing companies doing right now to maybe sort of address some of that impact?
2: So, we've all seen how hourly workers have been impacted, and it's one of two ways. Um, the first is that, unfortunately, so many have been laid off and let go. Now, there are the other, the flip side of that is you have companies who are saying, we can't hire fast enough um, you know, to take up that slack. And so, we have to do a better job of getting those jobs that are actually open, that companies are actually filling for, um, in front of the candidates whose requirements meet the needs of the companies. I mean, we have to do it quickly, we have to do it in a way that they can engage, so certainly mobile first, um, but in a way that, you know, if they do have 15 minutes between uh, on a break or, if, you know, they're on a, waiting at a bus stop or wherever it is, they need to be able to find a job, uh, apply for the job, express their interest, and get scheduled into an actual interview instead of going into a black hole of waiting and hoping that someone gets back to them. Um, so that's the first thing there. On the other side, we have... Um, companies who now maybe they do have, you know, just a significant amount of openings they didn't have previously, they're having spikes that are unprecedented, they haven't seen it before, certainly at that time of year, and you can only throw so many people at a problem or they've had to lay off 80 or 90% of their recruitment workforce, which is common. We're hearing that a lot. Now, all of a sudden, you know, the forecast is picking up economically. We have to hire back. You can't just hire all 90% of those people back right away. So we have to give them tools and technology to get in front of those candidates and to get them through quickly so that they're getting first access to the best candidates before their competition down the road does. Because as we know in this particular market, speed is the name of the game. Candidates for these particular jobs, they need a paycheck. Um, and if yeah. getting someone into an interview this week as opposed to two weeks from now is gonna help them pay their rent, then it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we give them the opportunity to do that and to make it as easy as possible for managers and recruiters on the back end to know who are they supposed to interview and when are they coming in.
1: So we started there and then was sort of focusing on the the candidate, but I've also seen as you sort of alluded to, there are companies that are, you know, not hiring or have laid a bunch of people off, but there's also these other companies that have had a boom, right? They're, because of this, they are in a in the right place at the right time to to need more people. And right. this has been a challenge for employees because, you know, do I suddenly go from doing this job to this other job? And can I do that? Can I make that switch? Even though know, that's where the demand is now. But from the company perspective, maybe what are some of the challenges you're seeing uh, while during sort of high volume hiring. Maybe they're not used to having to grab a hundred people. They'll go grab 10 people, but grabbing a hundred people is something totally different. So how are companies addressing this and how is this maybe sort of changing things in the landscape going forward?
2: So those who are set up to operate quite traditionally, which first of all, applicant tracking systems, which is what most companies will use today, were designed originally for that salaried professional hire. Um, It's you know, if it was a local hire, if it was a, you know, one of these frontline positions, they put a help wanted sign up in their window and people would come in and apply and they get them. But the challenge came when, how do we find these professional specialist positions uh, when we don't have that anymore? And so we had the the first wave, the applicant tracking system come through, but the system itself, all the workflows within it, everything was developed to support that professional worker. Um, <clears throat> so now what we're seeing is processing or systems that were defined designed to support kind of legacy processes that don't really work for this level of volume that you're talking about here. You'll have a a recruiter can get through, you know, 20 phone screens a day if they're lucky. And if you need to hire 100 people, that's not enough. Um, And so what companies are doing is putting in technology to automate those pieces of the process that can be automated so that the humans that they do have can spend their time doing the human part of recruiting. It's building those relationships. It's going into the communities themselves to find people that wouldn't necessarily be in an online platform and that sort of thing, um, and so that's how the the successful companies today are managing that. Um, you, they have to have systems in place to manage the volume coming through to get them scheduled without the phone tag or the email tag that exists today to get them in.
1: So one of the probably good things that's also maybe a bad thing if we're not careful is the amount of automation that's really kind of come into the industry in the last few years, especially. During this time of the pandemic, right? How do we how do we handle these large problems with 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 AI or automation or some sort of a process that's easy to handle and replicatable and consistent, but yet on the same time, a process like that can be gamed, manipulated, can cause you to miss out on great candidates, can cause you to you know a process is great, but if it's a bad process, it's a bad process, right? Yep. <laughs> so, so, what are you sort of seeing? You know, what, what what role should automation be playing right now in 2021? And maybe what are some of the things we should be thinking about?
2: So, it's a, it's really critical to weigh both sides of it. It's what it's it's to what you said. It's what should be automated, not just what could be automated. And how do we make sure that our candidates are still being treated as human beings and not commodity mm-hmm. um, when we're dealing with such a large volume? And that's what um, hourly, for sure, as a platform, has set out to address. It's making sure that we can. Um, First of all, go find the candidates. If they're on the internet somewhere, the platform is designed to go find them. If they're easy to find, we're gonna find them easily. And again, that's freeing up those recruiters to become community-based sourcers, like we talked about Mm. before. Automate what's easy, that's the first part. The second part is if you have, for example, we've seen chatbots dropped in on the front of systems. It's quite popular these days, and it's really quite good in getting some basic screening questions done to get some frequently asked questions back and forth. and then they drop them back into a legacy long hour-long application process. So we have to make sure we're not doing that. So um, with Hourly, we do have a, a, a AI conversation on the front end to again to do all those things I said. You're getting through initial screening. They're having that initial conversation just like a recruiter would. But we've all been stuck in chatbot hell, right? Where you're asking somebody something and it's I don't I don't understand. Please rephrase. And we had to make sure. that didn't happen to the candidates going through our platform so we actually put human beings behind the platform if the system senses frustration it's programmed to do that as a candidate or a hiring manager is going through or if someone just straight up says hey i need some help or i want to talk to a person we immediately right there within the chat get a live person in there to take that over so that nobody's stuck we can continue converting those candidates through the process so that the companies don't waste money that they've spent to acquire that candidate um, and that really takes them all the way through the process. So the other piece that we put in um, is it sounds um, sort of like an oxymoron, but it's personalization at scale. It's mass personalization. So when there is a um, an assessment built into the process, which we have in ours, it's very quick and easy to get through. But our system then takes that person's archetype. They take their personality profile and then sends out communications that are specifically based on that person's personality profile. It's not just a general communication, um, it's actually personalized for that person so that we're keeping them engaged and we're doing it in a way that's better than thanks but no thanks, or if you don't hear from us, try back in 45 days. It's giving that candidate information along the way that's going to help them be successful, and it's giving those managers on the other side some things to maybe probe for. So, hey, this person, you might want to ask about X, Y, or Z when you talk to them, and by the way, here's some examples of what you're looking for in a response, because most of the people interviewing in this level of position aren't trained recruiters, to be honest. Most of them are the hiring manager who's either making sure their distribution line is still running properly or that, you know, the end caps are filled in the retail store. So we really want to make sure and the best companies are making sure that they're addressing it at both ends. It's really about making it easier for everyone while still putting some science behind it and not just acting on gut feeling.
1: Yeah. And I think we, Pete, you know, we leave human beings alone. They'll just sort of hire people that they like, or people that they connect with or have something in common with. And that's not a particularly great strategy for, do you have a great employee? You know, on the flip side, I do also worry, you know, if we're looking for these certain types of personalities, these certain things that then we can end up hiring a whole bunch of people who all think the same, act the same. And so we have a bunch of, they're not robots, but like they're all going to obviously come to the same conclusions over and over again, generally on the same issues. And so you're not getting fresh thinking, you're not getting diverse thinking. Um, so are there certain maybe sort of strategies or things that we have to think about? I, I mean, it sounded like you had a bit of a hybrid approach where if you're sensing something isn't quite working right, you brought in a manager, you brought in some, uh, you know, a person to sort of help that process. Um, you know, where, where does that sit and what should we be thinking about so that we don't end up with, you know, I, it would be my worst nightmare to have 20 employees that all kind of think the same way. I mean, I
2: I, be terrible. I totally agree. Well, that's why we insert science into the process. So um what we end up with is exactly what you say. If I want to hire people who look and sound and behave and think like me, which um, science and studies show us, that's what humans tend to do. And you already Mm -hmm. alluded to that. And we need to make sure that we're taking some of that initial bias out of the process. So everyone who at least passed the pre-screen in this platform, for example, um, is invited then to uh, take this assessment. And the assessment is a visual assessment. Um, It takes about 90 seconds to take, but it's scientifically backed by about 50 years of research Um, to make sure that it's accurate and what it's accurate in is predicting um, certain attributes that are important job by job so not just company by company it's job by job role by role and that initial calibration um, is based on people who are already successful in that role for that company or in the market at large So it's looking at an aggregate population already and comparing it there. Now, it's important that you're not using this as a knockout tool. I firmly believe that nobody should use an assessment as a a knockout. Um, It's just another piece of data and the process um, to get somebody calibrated against the other candidates that you have. So it's using that to give anybody who's scheduling into uh, an interview already through a platform um, is already pre-assessed to meet the qualifications of the job, can work there, can work the shift. Can get there, whatever it is. But they also see their comparative rating against other people who've already been successful in the role. And to me, that's the best way to use an assessment. And I know the mm. companies that we've worked with, I mean, that our assessment partner have worked with, have found that to be really useful in doing things like um, slowing down attrition and that sort of thing. So those are the things that are really important in this role.
1: One of the things that I've done, and and. and- I'm not typically hiring, you know, hourly employees or employees that are working, let's say, as you mentioned, a restaurant or something like that. So I'm more professional services. So it is different. But I have typically, if I get far enough along with a candidate and we're asking them to take personality assessments, the first thing I do is send them all the personality assessments of the people who they've been talking to or who they're going to be working with or they're going to who's going to have a hiring decision for them. Mm-hmm. Um one, I feel we, we want to set this sort of uh stage for being transparent with them. Right. Um, but also I want to make it a level playing field, right? Like they need to know who we are because they need to make the same decision about us as we're making about them that I can see how they're going to operate and things. They need to look at me and go, well, Chris, Chris does not micromanage. He is, will leave me alone. And that can either be a wonderful thing or that can be a terrible thing. If you need someone on you and driving you and, And all that I'm, I'm hands off. I'm like, what are your goals? Cool. Let's talk in three months and let me know how you did. Um, Other managers are like, we need to talk every three hours to know, you know, where you are in your success so far. And, and, and I don't think that's a good approach, but for some people they want that kind of like constant feedback, constant interaction. So, you know, do you guys have anything in that kind of a process? Are you sharing? Or is that something maybe that we should be thinking about doing more in the coming years?
2: So, there's, I, I love that point that you just made, and I certainly love it per, for a professional hire. I think it's a great practice. Um, a couple of things that we need to consider. So, first, remember I talked about that we are communicating and engaging with these candidates um, sort of en masse, but still personalized. So, we're sending them things right now. We send candidates um, insights into themselves. So, here are some things, here's, here are some traits for your personality, here's some things that you may be. Um, prone to that you might want to be aware of, here are some things you really need to capitalize on because especially for this role, um, this is going to be a stretch, so make sure this comes out. Make sure you ask the interviewer, blah, blah, blah. So there are things, tips that we're giving them along the way that help them there. If you think about it the other way, and I want to find a way to work something like that in, but for this particular job, if you're hiring in mass, for example, um, commonly Uh, you'll have a circumstance where companies are interviewing uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 10 to 12. Um, Whoever's available on the management team or on their supervisor team is available to interview is who's going to take that interview. And so it's more about getting people through the process. I I hate to say it, but then they don't, it it may not even necessarily be their direct line manager that they're going to interview. So what's important is to make sure they have all the information about the company and the environment and a true look at, where they're going to be working and the actual job they're going to be doing is kind of more important in this type of role than it is for a professional role, if that makes sense. What we want to do is make sure that the candidate has every bit of information that they can have to be successful in that interview. And then to subsequently, whether they get that job or not to be able to take that information going forward as they continue on their job search.
1: Yeah. And and logistically and practically, I mean, it all makes sense. I guess in a perfect world, you would interview at least at some point with the Manager, you're going to be working for most of the time because that's probably going to be your experience. That's going to be what you view as your experience working and your culture that you're in, and uh, it's really your view of the company, right? Is often the people you work with and your boss. And um, yeah. but I, I can, I can. You know, my son worked for Amazon. I can easily understand and see like it's a large operation. You, there's just how would they ever possibly make sure that that one person who was probably going to be his boss, but may not be his boss in two months or whatever, was really the one who was doing that interview, right? You're really looking for a certain set of skills, certain set of people to come in and be successful. And then I guess you hope you've trained your managers right so that they can then create the right environment for them, even if they weren't the ones who really hired them.
2: Yeah. And that's it too. I mean, what I've seen most successful in these environments too, are that you really have to have a great deal of trust between your peers amongst your colleagues who are interviewing. So if you're running the third shift at a, on a production line, for example, but you're not interviewing third shift for safety or security reasons or whatever that may be. You better make sure that you've uh, aligned with your colleagues and, so that they understand what's specifically needed and nuanced for your team and that role on that shift. I mean, there just has to be a great deal of trust and experience there to make sure that you're getting that. It's tough, but companies are at least making strides there. I think with some of the ways that they're at least approaching the market and some of the tools that they're putting in place. So I'm, I hope. Um, <laughs>
1: Well, uh, you know, we do always try to ask uh, this next question to all of our guests. We don't always get to it, but I'm glad we're going to be able to get to it with you. And that is, is there a book that you're reading right now that maybe you might share with us or maybe one that you typically uh, suggest that people check out, especially for maybe for those who are who are hiring or are doing this type of work that they should be thinking about? Well,
2: the book that I'm reading right now is not necessarily something that anybody else would want to look at, but it's certainly <laughs> me. Um, it's it's actually called Zero to One. It's by Peter Thiel, written with Blake Masters, and it's about startups. So the company that I work for, AMS, is not a startup. We've been around since 1996. We have 4,500 employees globally, but our division is. We're very much separate. Um, hourly is the first, and what will one day be a suite of products that we put into the market, all with the goal of addressing these different verticals that have been um, historically sort of forgotten or looked at as, as second tier. So um, we're running our business like a startup, and we want to make sure that the approach we're taking is capitalizing on the really thousands of years of experience we have collectively amongst 4,500 people in TA while still bringing in the best that the technology market has since we've never developed our own product before, um, so that we're ultimately still giving the best guidance um, and counsel to our clients and not solely focused on tech. So that's kind of where where we're looking here. And I want to make sure that as the owner of product for this division, I want to make sure that I take that into consideration and really keep that at the forefront um, to make this decision, not just our division successful, but really any products that we're putting into the market are going to help make our clients
1: successful because that's what's most important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the most important question of the day is how can people find out more about your company? How can they find out more about you? What's the best place for them to go in and to do that work to find out more? So people
2: can go directly to weareams.com, and there's a product digital section there, or wearehourly.com, which is about our product directly. And I can always be found um, myself directly on LinkedIn. I'd love to collaborate and connect with any of your listeners who'd like to talk about this more. I could talk about it all day. But again, it's Quincy Valencia. I'm at AMS, and I can always be found on
1: LinkedIn. Yeah, that's where we found you. We know you do a lot of great work there. So Thank you so much, Quincy, for being a part of the show today and uh, giving us a, a lot of great insight into you know, the particular part of the market that you're an expert in. And hopefully we can have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the awesome stuff that you're doing.
2: Hey, anytime. I'd love to. Thanks for giving me the platform. And I, I could talk about it all day long. I hope it didn't come across come across too strong, but I appreciate the platform and the
1: time. No, it was wonderful. So thank you so much. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. And we'll bring in my second guest, ming Huang. Huang.
3: imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old there isn't much that stays the same for six months and the same thing goes for background checks in a time when so much outdated information is being passed around it's good to know that people g2 offers something different at people g2 we provide today's intelligence not yesterday's news our value-added approach offers you a fully fcra compliant solution that includes up to the minute information by combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? visit peopleg 2com or call 800-630-2880 that's 800-630-2880 or peopleg 2com
1: welcome back to the talent talk radio show in case you missed my first guest don't worry you can go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you are alerted when the show is up or you can listen to all of our other past episodes we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on stitcher you can go to towntalkradio.com and do it there as well. So we really appreciate you going and subscribing, sharing any episodes that you find valuable and being a part of the conversation. And don't forget being a part of the conversation means you can always go to Twitter, follow at peopleg 2 And we are there putting all the best one-liners links to the profiles of our guests, maybe any books they mention. We're sort of giving you all that content in case you're maybe driving in the car and listening right now and can't write that down. You can always go there to do that. All right, I'm going to bring in my second guest, and hopefully, I've been practicing, hopefully I can say her name correctly, but she'll let me know if I, if I don't, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to bring my second guest, which is Ming uh, Hui Huang, and uh, there we go, look at that, I'm two for two today, this is just unheard of, I usually mess up somebody's name, but she's a, a distinguished professor of e-commerce at the National Taiwan University of Information Management. Uh, welcome to the show, how are you today?
4: I am good, thank you, and thank you for having me here.
1: Absolutely. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background? We're going to certainly going to talk about some of the uh, technical things and different areas that you're you're teaching and 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 uh, discussing. But maybe you can kind of give us a little, little update or background on your bio to kind of brought you to this point today.
4: Okay, uh, but first I have to mention that you mentioned National Taiwan University, uh, which is in Taipei, and so my university told me that I have to mention. NTU is one of the best universities in in the world. Okay, that's the promotion part, (laughs) advertising part. (laughs) Yes, uh, I'm a distinguished professor of e commerce uh, at NTU, and I have been working on the interface between IT and uh, AI and service for quite a while uh, because I'm in the information management department, so I do have the technical background. And uh, so all my recent research focus focus on how the economic impact, the economic impact of artificial intelligence. And so that's why we have a new idea about uh, feeling economy. And we also have the idea about collaborative intelligence. And it's all about the interaction and collaboration, competition between AI and the humans.
1: So what is this feeling economy? And how does artificial intelligence, you know, help create that or how does it facilitate that? Can you kind of go a little deeper into that?
4: Yes, uh, uh, that's a very interesting thing because uh, our book, the title of our book is The Feeding Economy. And it's for sale. It's on Amazon.com right now. And uh, Amazon always has that kind of recommendation engine. So if you, whatever you want to buy, and then you will show a list of things that people also browse or also buy. Uh, Unfortunately, because the title is the feeding economy. So Amazon recommend a lot of self-help book and to help people who feel depressed or feel unhappy. But this is not the kind of book. It's a book about the economic impact and the job impact, labor impact of artificial intelligence. And this that, that shows that people has the misunderstanding about what's it got to do? What AI got to do with feeling. And that's the key point. AI has no feelings or AI is not good at feelings. But AI is a super computing machine computing machine. AI is so good at computing, data crunching. Data is a super thinking machine and it's not he' is not AI is not good at feeding. So when AI is so good at thinking, what what would be left for humans to do? Do you want to compete? Do you want to compete data crunching and uh, analytics against AI head to head? Can you do better than AI? No you know, way. <laughs> we, we, yeah, no way. We, can, we cannot, because we see that all the world the champions of chess games, Go games, they all lose the competition. They are the very talented people already. They lose their competition to AI because AI can learn so quickly. The computing powers, that's by definition, they are the super thinking machine. So the reason, the reason that we call that artificial intelligence were give rise to a feeding economy is to advance people that you should work together with ai ai is so good at thinking don't compete about thinking about you want to think better think better than ai you want to do what you are good at what humans are good at that is feeding the feeding parts so so
1: yeah so if AI
4: become your support
1: right right so will that sort of maybe start to alter the jobs or the the how we think about what we're going to be doing in the economy going forward Are we do we rely more on the ai for one thing and we need to spend more are you suggesting spending more time on the emotional and and the feeling part
4: yes uh that's what we uh, that's what we uh, how we talk about the feeling economy i can use an like example for example for financial analysis financial financial analysis in the education universities we train students to to do to data crunching, to, to, to analyze all the data, and so that based on your analysis, you can provide recommendations to, uh, to your clients. And so that is, it sounds like a very rational, rational jobs, oh, what, oh, what you are doing, all you, all you are doing is just uh, rational thinking by computing. But now with AI, AI can do much better than you and much efficient, accurate, more accurate and efficient. So what can they do? Financial analysis. In our papers, we actually demonstrate that with the real data. Uh, We demonstrate that the nature of their job changed. They have to switch their focus to the feeding part, the people part. And for example, when there was a Black Friday, uh, a stock market uh, collapse, their job is not to do the analysis. They are not to analyze the situation so that they can come up with a a set of, of facts to tell their clients and we see this is the fact don't be panicked this is what i can show you no they, they don't do that actually they spend most of their time comfort comfort to their clients and tell them don't be panicked because they they need to communicate uh, uh, emotionally to their clients as people to people instead of machine to people right that,
1: that is happening already so sort of a way to make your to be able to supercharge your relationships by having better information, to have better uh, understanding of what's happening so you can go back and then apply that, that real human part to it.
4: Yeah, um, even doctors, the same. Doctors don't have to read the x-ray films these days because machine can do that. That is patent recognition. Yeah. And what what doctors need to do is just based on the results, machine results, and then communicate with patients about what to do. Right. So it's more like that these are these are all happening right
1: now now one of the things that I found very interesting uh in preparing for our interview today was this uh, this sort of idea that you have that you think this feeling economy could be an uh, a, a really unprecedented power and influence a really specific time for women can can you explain why you think uh this might be helpful for women now?
4: Yes, and uh initially i don't like the idea but unfortunately this should that need to be and that it can be expected to be the case because when i say women will be in the superpower is because women women are good at people skills by nature and we are trained for example like me but my personal experience i I'm, i'm a feeding person but i'm trained to be a scientist and and then also, I even choose to be in information management department because I don't want to be feel as a stereotypical uh, as a woman that can only do feeling instead of thinking. And so I I twist myself to to do something that I'm not good at. I'm not so good at by nature. I become good at by education. And so, what machine can take care of all the thinking things, all the all the thinking jobs? women really doesn't have to treat themselves they can really, really go back to their their uh, human nature that is in general they are better at feeding skills and so that in that case as machine continue to be better and better about calculation female is in a comparative advantage a, a advantageous position compared to men that really they can they are they, they are more naturally to become a team to collaborate work together with machine but men is different men Typically, I don't mean everyone, but typically is more thinking rational oriented. And um, sometimes when I hand, when I deal with my, with my male colleagues, I just feel where's your empathetic plug? I want my AI to have an empathetic plug to plug into your ears so that you can be empathetic immediately. So that, that's why in as AI continue to be powerful, to be more powerful, that will give female a competitive advantage over men. Uh, to be in, uh, to survive better in the feeding economy.
1: Well, I'm wondering if this could give, uh, you know, sort of your approach would maybe give a new outlet or a new way in for for women to, cons- to consider or being a part of, of STEM, which is, you know, been brought up in the conversation again, and I think there has been additional debate and conversation around why we have so few women uh, inside the world of STEM uh, when they, they seem to do extremely well when they're there, but yet we have very few coming in. So what is your sort of thought about the STEM training and STEM overall? Is it obsolete? Is it maybe time for a revamp or how should we be thinking about that type of training and education?
4: I think we we need to more balanced, because our education really only teaches us one thing, rational thinking. And that is really twist a lot of people. If we assume, based on a random basis, if we assume 50% of the population are feeding people, and 50% fifty percent are thinking people. So if we only focus on STEM education, we are twisting the 50% feeding people into a thinking machine when actually they cannot. But like you can see that's why a lot of students feel very unhappy in education because that's not what they want. So what we emphasize emphasize in the book is, in the feeling economy, we should not just focus on STEM education. We should also focus on people education. And that has been ignored for quite a long time. And that's what requires an education uh, awareness and uh, a transformation to be more balanced on the two sides so that regardless a student is a feeding person or a thinking person. They can get educated and be prepared for their future career.
1: Yeah, and, and there's been, uh, I guess, a lot of different thoughts about, you know, at what point does it become, uh, when when do we really try to have to make some changes, right, For to get the right balance of people in for that kind of training? I have read things that said it goes back to when, uh, men and women are, are young, boys and girls are in school together, 12, 13, 14 years old. But that's the moment that we have to help empower women uh, to continue with science and, and uh, mathematics education. But that's the point when they get derailed. Uh, other, other times it's just a lack of, of, of mobility. It's a lack of uh, opportunities. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I hope they can figure it out, right? Because it does seem like with everything you're advocating for, and everything that's happening in our world, automation and AI and you know, a data science, I mean, if you can do any of those things, you have a really, really good opportunity to do some incredible work, make a lot of money, be very successful, have a great career. Uh, and those opportunities are there for anyone if they come with the education, if they come with the right skills, if they come with the right desire to, to do those jobs uh, and to be successful. Uh, but left unchanged, I mean, it might continue to be a male-dominated a profession and to your point, there may be some some things missing
4: there, right? Yeah, for the younger generation. For the younger generation, I think I can see a better future because they can use AI for life and for work, especially for life. They can use it in a great way. But for older generation like me, I mostly use AI for work, not for life. So I think uh, AI actually because it's part. They are in. They are the AI generations. So they can make better use of AI for work and for life, and so I can see that as soon as our uh, higher education don't distort them into STEM only, uh, I can see their better future to be in the feeding economy.
1: Now, let's maybe kind of turn this away from work, and we could talk for a moment about politics. H- how does this type of technology or this thought process go into maybe what we've seen recently in political elections that could be focused in the United States, it could be worldwide, but does this give an opportunity for us to look at more? Is there more chance for empathy? Is this more about rationality? Is this more AI? Is this, you know, is this candidates really getting their message out on a personal level or is it just blasting it, you know, sort of uncontrollably? Uh, How do you think this is going to play in in future elections and and political Mm -hmm. discourse?
4: Yeah, I I like to use Joe Biden as a because Joe Biden's campaign is a great example of empathy campaign. He really emphasized empathy. in in his entire campaign. And what I want to emphasize is empathy. Empathy is not equal to irrational. Empathy actually is rational, because empathy helps you to understand each other. Uh, It is important for interaction and communications. So only through communication and understanding each other's perspectives, any decisions that has been made is rational, because it's based on understanding, mutual understanding. And uh, uh, the other way is when you have no empathy, uh, machine has no empathy, and the other candidate has no empathy. It's just self-centered. I hope I do not offend you if we have different political stance. But when one person has no empathy, it does not mean he's rational. Actually, when you are not empathetic, it just means you don't understand, you don't intend to understand the uh, other people. And it's very irrational because you don't communicate. You just impose your decision on others. So the thing is, uh, in terms of uh, uh, polit- politics or political elections, empathy does not mean soft. Empathy means understanding, mutual understanding, communication, and is irrational because it's any decisions made based on understanding. That's what I want to emphasize because people tend to uh, mistaken that empathy equal to irrational. That's not the case.
1: I think empathy is a clear sign of high intelligence. I mean, you have to be able to think about not only what pops in your brain, but to really think about what somebody else is doing and going through. Uh, You know, there's a pretty simple definition. Sympathy is feeling bad for someone, right? But empathy is really being able to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes or having had been in their shoes, right? You really had gone through what they had gone through. Now, we can't have gone through everything that everyone else we meet has gone through, but to really be able to stop and think about that and what that might've felt like. And to try to imagine that, I think that's a sign of intelligence, yeah. um, and, and not irrationality. Uh, but you know, that's hard and it takes practice and you're wrong sometimes, and you don't always get rewarded for, for doing that. So, you know, it's, it, it can, it can sometimes reward the, the bully and the, the loud mouth and the person who's just going to talk over people, right. They can, we've certainly have seen that in our political uh, discourse in the last few years, right. The loudest person sometimes gets the most attention, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that's the right approach. So um, it's interesting to, to kind of hear you categorize the, the Biden campaign that way is that empathy. I hadn't thought about it that way, but there are clear speeches and clear things that he did that I think kind of uh, referenced that or reiterated that to to at least his base, uh, to to get them out to vote.
4: Yes, and you point out one thing that is very important. Uh, Empathy does not come easily. You need to learn and you need to practice. And that's why people tend to mistaken that either you have empathy or not. Actually, you can learn, you can learn to be more empathetic. And that really can help uh, help us to understand each other better
1: yeah now i did want to make sure i asked you 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 kind of alluded to the fact that ai is not going to be emotional right ai is not going to uh, to do some of the things that we can do as humans but i was wondering do you think ai can be creative though
4: yeah I i love the question because uh to answer that question we need to understand the definition of creativity and people tend to think uh uh, creativity equal to something new, but that's just half of the story. It's not only creativity; is not just uh, something new. It has to be something new that is liked. Mm. If it's not something that is liked, it's not creativity. It's just some weird new things. That uh, I can use one example that uh, this year I received uh, an AI painting as my birthday gift. And uh, when I received the gift, I really don't know. It looks just weird. I cannot explain it. So it's very new. And when I hang it on the wall, I even put it upside down because <laughs> it's, it's not understandable to me. It's very new. Right. But do I like it? No, I hate it. It's just so ugly from my point of view. And <laughs> they also explain. You can see that it's not easy for AI. It is. It's easy for. It's easy for AI to create something new, but it's difficult for AI to create something new that is liked by us because yeah. like likability is evaluation by somebody else. And so what involves evaluation is contextual, is cultural, is societal. So in that case, it's more difficult for AI to be creative. If AI just want to be the entity of the creativity itself. That is, yeah. for example, composed music, uh, draw a painting. If AI is just being used as the tool of creativity, yes, we, we are there already. A lot of people are using AI uh, mm-hmm. to facilitate with their creativity. For example, like a fashion fashion designer, they really need AI to forecast the fashion trend for them and to give them some ideas about uh, what they can do. And so based on the new ideas the AI suggests, they humans have the judgment. They can decide which one will be liked and which one won't be liked.
1: You kind of bring up a good point, And I want to maybe tell a quick story mm-hmm. so anyone listening, they can understand what is this judgment? What is this emotional part we're talking about? And I remember there being a story that the AI that Target was using was so good that if you did certain behaviors, they figured out that you were probably a woman, you were probably pregnant uh, or you were trying to be pregnant. And they began sending these people coupons and, and magazines and things about being a soon-to-be mom or to have children, but that they ended up allowing the other people in their home to find out, right? Because the AI figured out that this was probably what was happening. All of a sudden they're asking, well, why are you getting baby magazines? Why are you getting coupons for milk? Like, are you, a person had not told their parents or their spouse or whoever that they were pregnant yet, but yet here they, the AI had already figured it out and had already started sending. And so was that was the AI correct in trying to sell them baby products? Sure, but was that the right decision to do it then? So early before they would have probably told somebody or were comfortable telling someone or had gotten far enough along in their pregnancy they felt safe to share that with people. You know, could, could stuff be showing up to their work and to affect their job? Right. So there's that there's that decision making part that AI is not going to know. And we also, have to say, maybe we have to turn that down. Maybe that, that AI has got to be turned down a little bit, right? It's a little too aggressive.
4: <laughs> I love the example because it is, that example shows the AI's computing capability. Analyze from all the shopping data for what, uh, what a female buys and not buy, and buy A and also buy B for all the things. Analyze all these data and then identify the woman is very likely to be pregnant right now. So that's the computing power but the AI has no common sense, as you mentioned. A common sense is that if a teenager is pregnant, so already probably she doesn't want to be known by her her parents at this stage because she's not ready yet. And we have common sense, but common sense intuitions are very difficult for AI. So that's that's a very good, fantastic example.
1: So do you think AI can ever be, uh, get to a point where they, are close? Could they be at, you know in some ways as smart as us? or will that, do you feel like that's always they're just going to be another tool, right? A great tool, a very powerful tool, but you know just just a tool in, in our uh, you know toolbox of, of things that we need to, to be successful at work?
4: I think the key depends on when we say smarter, when, whether AL becomes smarter than humans. What do we mean by smarter? Do we mean smarter than humans in human ways or smarter than human in machine ways? The mm-hmm. difference, the difference AI do everything based on compu- computation because it's computing machine, but humans has a biological nature. Humans, humans are biological beings. So for example, we can experience emotion. So that experience is a bio- has a biological foundation, but AI can never experience emotion biologically it never can experience emotion in a machine way. For example, by simulating emotion, by approximate what emotion reaction it should have. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: But that's the calculating way. So even if AI may be smarter than humans, it it achieves that in a machine way, but not in a human way. And the, the biological parts, societal parts is always the most valuable assets that humans have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate uh, this conversation we've had today. You've shed a lot of light on some really interesting parts of work that I think are super important. Um, And uh, I want to make sure we have a moment here to ask you the last two questions. And that uh, first one is, is there a book that you're reading right now or one that maybe you typically suggest people check out?
4: Definitely check out my book, "The Feeling Economy: <laughs> How AI Is Creating the Era of Empathy."
1: Of course, good, good. And uh, how can people find out more about you? Maybe uh, you said you could find your book on Amazon, but maybe if they're interested in your work at the university or to uh, enroll there. What's the best way for them to find out more about uh, you know the university and your work?
4: Yeah, just search, just Google my names and uh, National Taiwan University in Taipei. And I'm in the information management department. You can find a lot of me, uh, information about me. Can be You can easily find information about me because I'm a little bit famous in my little world. <laughs> so that would be the easy way.
1: And if any of you maybe don't know how to spell uh, her name, I will uh, spell it out for you just in case so you can have an easier time finding her. So it's M-I-N-G and then a dash, H-U-I. And then that next word is H-U-A-N-G. So look her up. Uh, check out her work. uh, And thank you so much for being a part of the show and sharing everything and all of your knowledge. Hopefully we can have you come back at some point and uh, continue to teach us and inspire us on what's going on with AI and the feeling economy.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you Um, everyone for tuning in to today's show. Hopefully you've gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.